0: Hello and greetings. We're glad that you've joined us. We're really glad for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're Disciples Making Disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. And we've been doing a very important discussion on one of the foundational aspects of the faith, and that's the plan of salvation. To hear, to believe, to confess, to repent, to be baptized, and to be obedient to God. And not as if Uh, this is something that we've never discussed before, or is something that we feel is uh, something you might not have heard of. Instead, we're just going over it again, because it's good to be reminded of the essential truths of Scripture, uh, that we do not uh, forget them, and that they can be kept in our active memory. Uh, It's also good Uh, for us to reinforce the things that we have been taught from Scripture and to make sure that we remain established in the faith. We've already seen in previous discussions that if you're going to believe the Gospel, you need to know what the Gospel is. And to know what the Gospel is, you need to hear the Gospel. And for a person to hear the Gospel requires somebody to go and proclaim that message and why it's so important for that message to be taken out so others can hear it. That Christians have been called out of the uh, by God out of the out of darkness into His great light, uh, in First Peter two nine, and that's who, what we're supposed to be doing. We've also seen the, how important belief is to salvation. That yes, we need to give mental assent that Jesus is the Christ, and but also to go beyond that and put our trust in Him, and that true belief is going to demand obedience and following the standard of Jesus, and you begin demonstrating that belief through confession, which is to speak the same thing as to declare that Jesus is the Christ is the Son of God and to repent, to change one's hearts and mind for the better, uh, yes, sorrow for past sin, but to change the heart and mind follow after Jesus to no longer walk in the ways of darkness but to walk in the path of light. And so we now continue our examination with the need for baptism. Matthew 28:18 through20, uh, Jesus says, "All authority has been in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see here that part of making disciples is to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son and Holy Spirit. Likewise, the end of Mark's Gospel, Mark 16 and verse 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. A very clear statement. Acts chapter 2 and in verse 38, after Peter has preached the first message to the 3,000 day of Pentecost, and they have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of, of God, that God has made him Lord in Christ, through his death and resurrection, and they cry out, "What? What do we do?" They're cut to the heart. They want to know what they're supposed to do. And Peter tells them, be, "Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit." So his immediate response: they are supposed to be there to repent, and they're to be baptized. And the baptism was for the remission of sin. In Acts 8, 35 and 39, we are told that Philip is preaching about Jesus to this Ethiopian eunuch that he's met. And as he's preaching about Jesus, the eunuch asks, when they came by some water, in verse 36, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Of course, there was nothing. The eunuch makes a good confession. And then we're told that... The eunuch commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And they came out of the water. The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, but went on his way, rejoicing. As we see that both went into the water, we also can see that by preaching Jesus, the eunuch understood the need to be baptized, and his natural response to hearing Jesus preached was the desire to be baptized. In Romans 6, 3-7, through 7, Paul provides a, kind of a theological understanding of baptism. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, we see here that baptism is a symbolic death and resurrection, that it is the spiritual death and resurrection, putting to death the man of sin, so that the man could walk in newness of life. New creation can arise just as Jesus died and was raised. And also, baptism is associated with a death and a burial. We have other passages. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, Paul says that whoever has Uh, put on baptism, as in baptism is put on Christ, Uh, many other passages. One other passage of note uh, for the time being is in 1 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 21, in which the Apostle Peter says, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Here Peter says, "Peter, I mean, baptism saves you. And he makes it clear what it is. And it's not getting dirt off the flesh. It's appeal for cleansing a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. And so we've seen a multitude of passages, not even just one or two, but many passages, and many more we could go to to show how important baptism is for salvation. So, what is baptism? Why is it commanded? Why is it seems like such a big deal to people? Why is it such an issue of argumentation? To begin with, when we look here at the scriptures and see what baptism is, we first see something very clear throughout who is being baptized? The people who are being baptized are the ones who have believed in Jesus. That's why Mark 16 is written the way it is. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. The expectation is that baptism is a natural consequence of belief. What happens if you believe? You'll be baptized. What if you don't believe? Well, you're not going to get baptized. We don't see anywhere in the New Testament that infants or anyone who is not capable of belief were baptized or that they would need baptism. Baptism, as we saw in Acts 2 and verse 30, is for the forgiveness of sins. And if it's for forgiveness of sins, one must have had to commit sin and be aware that they've committed sin so as to be guilty of sin. And there must be, therefore, knowledge of sin before one can be baptized to be cleansed from it. So we can see there who is baptized are adult believers. But what is baptism? And there's unfortunately some confusion with this in the modern religious world because the term baptism is used to describe a religious ceremony that can be accomplished through pouring water on a person, sprinkling water on a person, or immersing water. Immersing a person in water. The Greek word baptizo, which we get baptism from, and in fact it's the transliterated Greek, right, from the Greek, uh, means to wash or dip, that is to immerse. It's a term used for clothing, for other such things, uh, and it does refer to the full covering of a garment or something of the sort with water. Unfortunately, uh, the reason why it's not translated immerse, but actually transliterated baptize, is all the way back before probably the King James of 1611, but in the uh, introduction to the King James, one of the rules set down for that translation would be that certain words like baptism would be transliterated baptized and not translated immerse because the practice of all the churches that time was to sprinkle or to pour and if they could not find such things and it was called immersion the the error of their ways would have been made clear we need to be clear that baptizo does not indicate sprinkling or pouring it means immersion there are Greek words that are serviceable and used in scripture for sprinkling uh, and for pouring Pouring out of the Holy Spirit in Acts two. There's a sprinkling of blood, and I think First Peter one and also in the Hebrew letter. Those words could be used. They are not. So, in baptism is immersion. The good question is, what, what we're baptized into. A lot of people have heard things about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. John promised that Jesus would baptize in the Holy Spirit. And Jesus talked about baptizing the Holy Spirit. I and mean, that's a good study uh, in and of itself for another time. But we can see that only twice are there events that are called a baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 and the conversion of Cornelius and his men in Acts 10. Um, really, I see, I mentioned more in Acts 11 in reference to those actions in Acts chapter 10. In those times, God has worked miraculously in dispensing the Holy Spirit, And it served to demonstrate God's power, to demonstrate to the Jews that the Gentiles would be saved in the case of Cornelius. And it's also for prophetic witness, uh, as the prophet Joel had prophesied in Acts chapter 2. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit was something done by God. But throughout the rest of the text, when we talk about baptism and see baptism, it's being done by people, and it's being done by uh, people in water. And interestingly, about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 10, once Cornelius and his men had been baptized by the Holy Spirit, Peter's immediate reaction to that in verse 47, Can with, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ. So clearly, even there, the understanding of baptism was primarily this immersion in water. That even when this baptism of the Spirit took place, and Peter's not going to deny us what it was, in fact, in the next chapter, he's going to tell everybody that's exactly what it was, but that they still need to be baptized in water. And the Holy Spirit was also laid on, was also uh, given by the apostles by the laying on of hands. In Acts chapter 8, Peter and John come down to Samaria, to do after the Samaritans, in Acts 19, uh, Paul meets some disciples of John heading to Ephesus, and he talked to them and asked if uh, they had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, had received the Holy Spirit, excuse me, and they did not even know there had been there was a Holy Spirit, and so he taught them the truth about Jesus. They were baptized into Jesus, and then Paul laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So it's very clear from Scripture that you can't just do a one-to-one between baptism and baptism and Holy Spirit. Uh, there's one baptism in Ephesians four and verse five, we're told, and the one consistent baptism in the New Testament is baptism in water. That God miraculously dispensed the Holy Spirit in in a miraculous dispensation in Acts 2 and Acts 10. Other times, the Holy Spirit was given by other means. But baptism remains consistent throughout the text. Another good question that we'll ask is, why are we baptized? In So many places, baptism has been made a sacrament. It's been sacramentalized. It's been made into this uh, very religious idea and ceremony. That's that's gotten in the way a little bit. Because when we use the word baptize or baptism anymore, we're referring to a religious ceremony. And therefore, anything called a baptism is given religious significance. We wouldn't call our daily bath or shower and baptism, even though that is a washing and an immersion. We would not say that we are baptizing our clothes, even though it is a washing or an immersion and things of that nature. It's very important for us to recognize that in the New Testament, baptism was used in all of these ways. It was not merely a religious word. It could be used for religious ceremonies and was used for religious ceremonies even before Jesus and before John the Baptist. But <coughs> the word, just in general, refers to all kinds of different types of washing. It could refer to clothes, it could refer to people. That's why in First Peter 3 and verse 21, Peter emphasized that baptism not the removal of dirt from the flesh. What's important about that aside there, is that if somebody were to get immersed to remove dirt from the flesh, they are not uh, obtaining what they're after, because they're not being baptized, they're not getting cleansed for uh, and, and immersed for the reason that they need to do that. In fact, as Peter will say, it's our request to God for a clean conscience to the resurrection of Jesus. And so purpose does matter with baptism. If a baptism is done for the wrong purpose, it's just a bath. There is the whole real import and religious significance of the action is in its meaning It's not like the water has intrinsic holiness uh, it's the faith that's being expressed in the action, so the action has to be motivated by the proper purpose. Two people can get equally immersed. And one person can receive salvation through it because they're trusting in Jesus for, for the forgiveness of their sins in doing it, and somebody else are doing it for an entirely different reason, and therefore uh, have a entirely different conclusion. And so we can see in Acts, First Peter three twenty one, as you mentioned, and Acts 2, 30 at eight that we are baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. That's how we can get cleansed from the sins we've done in the past. It's an appeal to God to have the cleansing. And through the blood of Christ, God reckons us as cleansed when we enter the waters of baptism because we are putting our faith in Him, in Christ, to do what He said as He said to do it. And so it's the basis of that faith. Uh, The acts that go along with that faith, that God is remitting the sin of the one being baptized through the blood of Christ. So that's why it's still all being done by faith. If it's not being done in faith, it means nothing. And the significance of baptism in the life of a believer is is pretty strong. It it it's not significant in as much as it 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 is something that you do frequently. It is not significant because it takes a whole lot of time. It's significant because it is the beginning of the Christian life. Uh, just as a, a marriage relationship uh, begins at the wedding, so the Christian walk with God begins at baptism. It is a point of baptism that one has been cleansed from past transgression. And that's the only means by which you can stand before God. Otherwise, our iniquity stands in front of us, and we cannot stand before God as if it did end. to other places. And you know, it's hard to talk about the of salvation because belief and confession and repentance and baptism are all going on at a very similar time. Uh, that, yes, belief... Here is obviously first, then belief, confession, repentance are all having before baptism. And people quote, up they argue, uh, you know, whether it should be confess, repent, repent, confess. It's hard to kind of uh, tease out those on, on a time scale, so to speak. But with confession, you're declaring what you believed about Jesus is true that's well and good, but you still have your past sins. Repentance, you're saying that you're going to no longer walk in those ways, which is very important for the future, but it doesn't clear the past. It's the point of baptism, where you now have faith in God, you have the cleansing from past sin, and you have the repentance uh, and the conviction to move forward. And so that's why Romans 6, 3-7, baptism is a point of death and resurrection. uh, That you died with Christ, you're raised to walk in newness of life. When do you have newness of life? When you're raised to walk in it, after you've been put to death, the man of sin. And that's the point at which we, we, we the past burdens of sin are removed from us and that we're able to run the race that is set before us. But just like a marriage, even though it begins on the wedding day, uh, there's still work that needs to be done, and that relationship needs to continue to grow, and that the, you don't say, well, uh, uh, we've done all we need to do, we we got married. Uh, so it is with baptism. Baptism is, is less the end as it is the beginning. It is the new birth in John 3. Jesus puts it that way, and for good reason, because at that point you are born again. You are as a spiritual baby. Then comes the growth, then comes the learning to trust in the relationship, the falling down and getting up, the proclaiming of Jesus and, and the things we're going to talk about. Uh, in another lesson we talk about developing in the faith. It must be very important for us to recognize and emphasize that baptism isn't an end. Is it a beginning? The, the issue is you can't just think, "Oh, well, I've got this sin problem. I'm going to go get baptized. Oh, I got baptized. Got rid of my sin problem. I'm going to go back to the way I was and do back, Go, you know, return to my normal life, so to speak." Quote unquote. That's a fundamentally misunderstood view of what the gospel is, the nature of the sin problem that we have, and the fact that God is not just out to wipe our sins away. He wants actually for us to grow in in obedience. That he wants us to be the kind of people he would have us to be, uh, as he intended for us in the beginning, and that that requires a relationship. It requires work over time. This is very important. We are not baptized to join a church. However, in Acts two forty one and forty seven, we're told that God added to the church those who are being saved daily. And that's in the King James guy added to their number. But the idea is they're being added to the church. So once a person is baptized, they are a Christian. When they are a Christian, they become part of the body of Christ. They become part of Jesus. Thus, they're part of the church. Is that the reason for baptism? No. That's one of the consequences of baptism. And we see that at every opportunity, those who are redeemed do associate together with one another uh, in their community as a local church. And so baptism is extremely important. It is immersion in water, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the remission of sin. And it's done in the name of Jesus for the, or the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit because it's by the authority of God, by the authority of Jesus and on account of what Jesus has done for us. And therefore, when, we, when it's put that way, without baptism, how can it be said that we have remission of sin? If there's no remission of sin, how can we have any association with God? That really shows why baptism is so important. And when you lay a case out like that, it's very clear from all the evidence in the New Testament. In the first century, in the New Testament, without a doubt, the response of faith, the expected response of faith, when the gospel is heard, was baptism. That there was no sinner's prayer, there was nothing of the sort. It's very simple, very clear type of event because uh, the washing of baptism was a representation of the cleansing going on that God was providing in Jesus. It was an appropriate death and burial and resurrection illustration. Uh, and above all it's very simple. Humans need water to survive. Wherever there are humans there is water and there is enough water to immerse somebody and to bring them back up. And that is why in his economy God has established this as the way that we show a response in faith to what God has done for us in Jesus. But it has become so controversial because of all kinds of arguments that are advanced against this very simple biblical idea that we need to be baptized to be saved. And so many of these arguments are coming out of a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying about trying to be justified by works. As we've said, it is not justification by works, it is putting one's trust in God and acting accordingly, which is commended and demanded throughout the New Testament. And so some, in a misguided attempt to preserve an idea of faith only that the New Testament does not even espouse, uh, rail against the idea that baptism would be necessary for salvation. They'll recognize that people should be baptized, that it's a symbol, uh, but they just refuse to give baptism the credence that it's given in the pages of the New Testament, and and that the descriptions of a New Testament cannot possibly, in their minds, mean what they're actually saying. And they make some arguments attempting to show that baptism really isn't necessary for salvation. We could spend all kinds of time talking about all these arguments, but so let's talk about a few of the popular ones. Perhaps the most popular argument, whenever anybody starts talking about um, how one gets saved in terms of Baptism. They want to go to the thief on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 40, uh, one of the other criminals that's being crucified next to Jesus rebukes the his. Fellow criminals, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so people say, Well, see there, the thief on the cross was saved, and he was never baptized. And that, that's a fair point, but there's certain things we need to keep in mind about the thief on the cross. First of all, Jesus himself has yet to die. Jesus is on the cross dying, but he has yet to die. He has yet to been raised from the dead, which is the great moment at which he is made the Son of God according to, uh, declared Son of God in power, according to Paul in Romans 1 and in verse four. And uh, he, the kingdom had not yet come. He had not arrived in all authority as it would on the day of Pentecost. And furthermore, the thief is receiving a special dispensation from Jesus. Jesus has spoken to him personally and told him he would be with him that day in paradise. And the Lord has the right to do that. And if the Lord comes to you and says that you were saved, no matter even if you're not baptized, then that's the Lord's prerogative. But we see the testimony of the Scriptures from when the Gospel began to be proclaimed, Matthew 28, Mark 16, and throughout, that they needed to respond in baptism, and baptism is necessary none of us are living in the time of the thief on the cross, and there's no indication in scripture or anywhere else that the way the thief on the cross cross, uh, was saved was going to be the way that everyone else is going to be saved. And it would be very foolish to build upon that when the Bible gives us plenty of illustrations of how people are saved. We can look at the Jews on the day of Pentecost. We can see uh, Cornelius and his men. We can see the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. We can uh, talk about the Corinthians and the Romans and all kinds of other people, where Paul and Peter and Luke and these accounts talk about how they heard how they believed, and they confessed and repent how they're baptized, and so therefore trying to use the thief as as an argument is is not wise at all. And some will also argue that in mark sixteen sixteen that we talked about everyone who was Whoever is believe whoever believes and is baptized. shall always say, it, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Is not original to the New Testament, and also, or also, that it doesn't say what'll happen to the one who believes but is not baptized. It is true that many New Old Test old many of the most ancient manuscripts of the New Testament do not have Mark sixteen nine through twenty as we have them uh, preserved, and there's some confusion the textual witnesses. Even if it is not exactly what Mark wrote it would be consistent with the type of message at the end of Mark in the resurrection it's consistent with Matthew 28 and there's certainly other passages that talk about the importance of belief and baptism and even Irenaeus, a church father of the late 2nd century uh, quoted Mark 16.16 16, uh, as part of the gospel of Mark and as, as scripture and so that's very very uh, close to the time of, of Mark as we're going to get um but when it comes to the interpretation, there's a good reason why neither a person who does not believe and is baptized or believes but is not baptized are mentioned, because the whole flow is trying to show that whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved, that if you believe, you'll be baptized. Uh, the, the text does not, Jesus does not expect to see somebody who believes but is not baptized, because if he believes, he's going to do what he is told to do because he has put his trust in the Lord Jesus. It, you can't believe in Jesus and then show outright rebellion and refuse to do the thing He's told you to do. You haven't really believed in Jesus, and thus, those who are disbelie those who uh, believe but are not baptized really haven't believed. They haven't really put their trust in Jesus, and therefore, there. Uh, we should not expect to think that since Jesus is not explicitly mentioned what happens to the one who. Uh, Believes but is not baptized, and somehow such people are commended. There is no such commendation in the New Testament. Another argument is people trying to use Greek prepositions, and they'll say that in Acts 2 and verse 38, when Peter says to be baptized, we say in the English standard, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins that preposition for, in some versions of the American Standard, unto, is a Greek word, ace. And some say, well, really, it doesn't mean for, it, it should mean uh, because of, that, that you should be baptized because you've had your sins remitted. Well, Greek prepositions do have a wide range of meaning, and ace is no exception to this. Uh, and Greek prepositions tend to get their meaning from their context. Uh, what's very interesting is if this were true, it'd be something you would expect to see in a lot of these translations that are heavily heavenly pu- pushed by evangelicals who uh, believe in baptism but not for salvation. And yet, consistently, in the translations of the Bible, they are using for unto, they're demonstrating that the purpose of baptism is for remission of sins, that it's not the result of remission of sins. And the reason why you, you're starting to get this thing is that you're trying to now argue matters of theology and doctrine using grammar. And that's not in the appropriate way of using grammar because it, the grammar cannot uphold that argument. And beyond anything of that, the whole argument is really devastated by Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28. Because in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, Jesus says, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And that for-, for the forgiveness of sins is ace and it's actually the exact same reconstruction letter by letter as what Peter says in Acts 2 and verse 38. And certainly no one in the evangelical community is going to start trying to suggest that Jesus died because our sins were forgiven. No, no. They affirm very strongly that here ace is certainly showing purpose and it's the exact same construction. The only difference is Jesus is saying that this is a, his represent His blood is represent, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins, and Peter says, "Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins." It's a very powerful argument actually to show. Yes, uh, this very closely and intimately associates baptism and Jesus' death. That's how we get the forgiveness of sins, and this is crucial because no other. Passage in the New Testament explicitly says this is how you obtain the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, Jesus' death allows for the forgiveness, but no other action is denoted as the way that that is contacted, that you come into contact with that blood or with that for atonement. Save Acts two thirty eight with baptism. You will search in vain to find anywhere where. Uh, the text says that you pray a prayer in order to obtain salvation, in order to obtain the forgiveness of sin. It just does not exist. So there's no reason to doubt in Acts 2.38 that Peter is commanding the Jews to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, that that's the purpose of the baptism. Another popular argument uh, involves Cornelius. And people say, well, Cornelius received the Holy Spirit before he was baptized, so therefore he was saved. Before he was baptized. And for me, that sounds like a pretty decent argument. But there's there's two difficulties with that argument. First of all, so the argument presumes that be, they were saved because they received the Holy Spirit, that somehow the Holy Spirit only kind of come upon them because they are saved. And number two, they're not yet understood why the Holy Spirit fell upon Cornelius in the first place. First of all, uh, we can make a biblical proof that just because somebody receives the Holy Spirit doesn't mean they are saved. So a very important uh, premise here, and the first one is in Second Peter chapter one and verse twenty-one. We're going to go through a line of logic here. I hope you can follow me here. Second Peter one twenty-one, where Peter says, "For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Now I want us to be very clear here that no prophecy is produced by man's will, but it's produced by the Holy Spirit. So in the Bible, if we are told that somebody's prophesied, and it's not being used sarcastically or it's not being used in as as an, an accommodating way, uh, we, we can know that it's coming from the Holy Spirit. Now, having said that, let's go to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, the report has gone about, the Jews are very concerned about this, and so in verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather under the one, the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So here's Caiaphas, who's high priest, who will in a few days condemn Jesus to death, say he's blaspheming, which of course is itself blasphemy. And John says the Caiaphas doesn't say what he does because he was said it, but because he was holy, he was a high priest, he, he prophesied. Remember what we saw about Second Peter about prophecy, that it comes from the Holy Spirit. So here's a man who is actively plotting to kill the Son of God. And he has a Holy Spirit. Does that mean that he is saved? I don't think that means he's saved. I don't think most people believe that means he's saved. Which shows us that here's a man who received the Holy Spirit but was not saved because God was working through him for a particular purpose. And that's exactly what's going on with Cornelius and his men. Cornelius and his men received the baptism of the Holy Spirit to show to Peter and the Jews with him that God has accepted Gentiles as Gentiles. That's exactly how Peter interprets it. That's how Peter explains it in Acts 11 to the Jews in Jerusalem. The Jews in Jerusalem are satisfied that God has granted the Gentiles repentance that leads to life. In chapter 15, it will also anchor why it is not necessary to impose the law of Moses upon Gentiles because God has accepted Gentiles as Gentiles. And so, that is why the Holy Spirit comes upon them. That is why Peter's immediate response is they need to be baptized. Why do they need to be baptized? Because they need to receive the forgiveness of their sins. So, no, Cornelius and his men do not show that baptism is not necessary. In fact, they're another example of why baptism is so important. Another important uh, argument is made in 1 Corinthians 1.17, First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17 where Paul's talking to the Christians in Corinth and he tells them that for Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You'll say, well see, Paul was not sent to baptize. Therefore that people don't need to be baptized. Uh, baptism came part of the gospel. But such an argument's really kind of missing the point here uh and this is where a good contextual reading is important uh, in verse 10 uh paul's appealing that they will not have divisions because he's heard their divide There's some are saying they're apollos they're cephas or paul or christ and, and he said he's thanked god that he baptized none of them except christmas and gaia so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name i did baptize also the house of stephanus beyond that i didn't know if i baptized anyone else so he's kind of if it really were true that he was not to baptize, he's contradicted himself, because he just said he baptized like at least four people. Uh, but the reason here, and that's the important thing, why is Paul not sent to baptize with the priest of the gospel? Because people will think they were baptized in the name of Paul, that they were going to confuse the messenger with the message. Not that baptism wasn't important. All these people were baptized. Paul even baptized many of them. So the issue is not... Baptism, it's the fact that they were saying, Well, I'm baptized by Paul. That, that's as if somehow that meant something. So the issue is really Paul, not baptism. Another argument is that baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward grace and that it's a symbol. That's what uh, Peter's saying in 1 Peter the, the the likeness, the, the, the Greek word antitupos, the antitype of. of of this is baptism which saves you. Uh, it's very important to notice that nowhere in the scriptures is baptism told that it's a public profession. Uh, in fact, a lot of times people were baptized without anybody around. Like in Acts 8, the eunuch, as far as we know, it was eunuch Philip and the eunuch's charioteer. In Acts 9, verse 18, we know that it, there was. Uh, Ananias and Saul. We don't know if anybody else was around. So it's, it's really hard to say that baptism is always a public profession when in fact it's not always a public profession. Confession is to be made before many witnesses but baptism doesn't have to be. A lot of times people get confused with 1 Peter 3 because 1 Peter 3 uh, has this Greek word antitupos. An antitype. And a type is a kind of a correlation. Um... We talk about Moses as a type of Christ, because Moses gave the law, led the people, Jesus would die for the people, and, and would provide the new covenant. Uh, Elijah is a type of Christ. Uh, you can look at all these different comparisons. David is a type of Christ. Uh, the, there is a likeness between the two. An anti-type is the like figure, or corresponding likeness. Uh, so people think that it means it's a likeness. it's only something that's not really real, it's just a symbol. But antitype is really a contrary type because in First Peter 3:20 Paul and Peter was talking about Noah, that God's patience was in Noah's day when a few eight persons were brought safely through water. See in the days of Noah, everybody who was immersed in the water died and those who were on top of the water were saved. Baptism is the opposite. In baptism, those who are dry are the ones who will be condemned. It's the ones who are who immersed who are going to be saved. That's why it's the corresponding light. It's kind of the inversion of the original type. And it is true that baptism is a ritual and it has symbolism. Let me be very careful about how we nuance this. It has symbolism because, again, it's not like the water has magic. That you are submitting to a representation of death and rebirth death and resurrection. But you're not actually going through death and resurrection. You're just going underwater, coming back up. But it spiritually represents death and resurrection. <coughs> so there is powerful symbolism involved. But that doesn't just reduce it to a symbol as if that means it's unimportant. It's like the Lord's Supper is a symbol. It represents the body and blood of the Lord. and the, But we still have the bread and the grape juice, so we still partake of it. And it's the meaning it's the sharing it's the meaning it's 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 all of that that empowers it you can eat crackers and grape juice at other times and it doesn't have the same Ill, the meaning and the same as with baptism you should be hopefully immersing yourself more often in your life than just in the day you get baptized but there's meaning behind it and that's the thing it's a physical action with spiritual consequences and so it can't be reduced to a mere symbol a lot of other arguments that people want to use are various what-if scenarios. That uh, what if somebody hears about Jesus on a plane, the plane crashes in the middle of the desert, and there's no water to die? Can they be? Are, are, is, are they going to be saved, or something of the sort? And and people can come up with all kinds of ridiculous what-if scenarios. And we need to make something very clear: we're not the judge. God is. God may decide to have mercy on people. That's up to him. That's his prerogative, James 4.12, Romans 14 as well. Uh, but even if we were going to be hardliners about it, we could say that a person has many opportunities to hear the gospel and obey it. And maybe if it, they don't, if they wait till the last minute, uh, Matthew 25, sometimes that means that you, you lose out. Um Likewise, what happens if the plane crashes and the person's just about the point of repentance or confession or belief or you can go... All, you know, any point in that whole discussion, you can stop the clock and say, okay, now what happens? And that doesn't prove anything. It doesn't prove anything because we're no longer going according to the pattern. We're now just going according to whatever what if scenario. Um, because even if God does make an exception, it doesn't change the rule. All men have fallen short of the glory of God. If God condemns, he is right to condemn. If he decides to have mercy, then he is merciful. But the rule that we do see in Scripture, because we're not all on a, fire, a plane crashing down, is that we need to be, believed, to be believed and to be baptized. And so when you have the opportunity to be baptized, these what-if scenarios aren't going to absolve you of the of what God has demanded of us from uh, what we have seen in the pages of the New Testament. And so it's really an argument to absurdity. It really shows that there's not much left, because otherwise there will be a more compelling argument used. Now these are only a few of many others. There's all kinds of arguments that people try to use to try to explain away or try to get around. It's very clear in Scripture. And there's no need to. There's no need to fight the importance of baptism. Because baptism is something to which you submit. It's done to you. That who's doing is, is less important than it's being done. That it's immersion in water in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. That's the point at which one becomes a Christian. Because they're cleansed of the past. They walk, rise to walk in newness of life. And they can become part of the people of God. The power of baptism is not in the water. But it's in that faith. That appeal for cleansing. In the name of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me, through his blood. And there's a lot of people, a lot of arguments people want to use. But in the end, they do not stand up to the scripture. And the scriptures continue to show that when you believe in Jesus, you confess him, you repent of your sins, you should be immersed in the water in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. <coughs> Excuse me. We're so glad again that you've joined us today. Maybe you've got some more questions about baptism. Uh, maybe you need to get baptized. Maybe you just need to talk about other spiritual things, or you have a prayer request, or you just need to talk. Anyway, I can be of service. Please let me know. Please contact me through our website, devervitae.com. That's www.d-e-v-e-r-b-o-v-i-t-a-e.com. And if you're interested in more about, learning more about the Venetian Church of Christ, you'd like to check us out. Please find us online. We're at venetianchurchofchrist.org. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, many of the social media pages at Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.